it's a huge factor for your own perception of reality, meeting a different being. The whole planet deserves to know the truth. You may be one of the few people who might be able to help us understand. Species are brought together on a table and have diplomatic conversations. This is happening? This is happening. Where? Give an example. What happened with you? This great being enters the room. It's a strong, crisp frequency that your body reacts to. It's happening. It's happening behind the scenes. I mean, Tim... What is the true history of Earth? I'll introduce the discussants here. Um, David Adair, and then, of course, Linda Moulton-Howe, and Brad Olson, one of the few who's made the voyage, and Michael Sala, who's an expert researcher who goes deep into all the knowledge. So if this is going to be a discussion, we have to understand what we're talking about, right? What what is Antarctica? What is the possibilities? do, do, you, do you want to start, Linda, because you've talked to whistleblowers and give a kind of overview, and right. then other people can jump in and see how they add their knowledge? So wh- how did it get there? What is it? Well, in terms of, we'll call it Earth history, you can go back to around the 1500s, and there allegedly might have been a ship that got as far as Antarctica, It doesn't solve the uh, map uh, that people argue about whether or not there was actually a P. Reese map that showed Australia for real, like from above, and may or may not have had outside intelligence. I'm not talking about that. There were discoveries, though, in the 15th century, and then as we got closer into the 18th and 19th century. So there is a modern history that is older than a lot of people think in terms of at least exploration reaching something near Antarctica. The big mystery that I was shocked to discover as I was doing the Spartan One and Two Whistleblowers is the question, how did Antarctica become covered with one to three miles thick ice while the rest of the world was not covered? And the more you dig into that, you will find that something very strange happened 34 to 33 million years ago. In the previous 100 million years from there, Pangaea, It is a Greek word that means the whole world. That's when the land masses were all congealed together. And then something happened. Volcanic pressure started splitting apart and a kind of roundish, huge land. A lot of people don't realize that Antarctica is 1.5 times the size of the United States. And it started for reasons that kept expanding down and down and down, and it took about 100 million years for this huge landmass to make it to the South Pole. 
the entire time it was hot or warm and tropical, they found this in terms of pollen and sediments and drilling, um, which they have hard evidence, uh, various kinds of dinoflagellates that only could have been alive if there were warm temperatures. And this all leads up to why 34 million years ago, suddenly, in the continent of Antarctica at the South Pole, it started for a million years becoming covered with one to three miles of ice. So it is a geophysical mystery. It is a mystery from the standpoint that from World War II, Antarctica was associated in that war with Nazis possibly having a link to extraterrestrials from Aldebaran, a reddish sun 65 light years well, from Linda, Earth. Linda, I don't mean to interrupt, but just... But it's it just coming up to now, all of this is the background about why this is so strange, and then now military whistleblowers are saying that there are alien structures there. Right. No, thank And you. when would they have been built if the last time this continent was without ice 34 million years ago? Well, that's the big question. So let's have other people join that discussion. Right. Brad, what were you saying? Well, Linda brought up the Piri Reese map, and I include that in my talk, too. And if we could focus in on what Antarctica looked like before the ice, you'll see that there is water channels below it. It's much smaller than the land mass and ice mass that we see today. East Antarctica is one of the oldest land masses in the world, over 3 billion years old as Linda pointed out, was once part of Pangaea when it broke off. It moved down from, broke off from Australia and Africa, whereas West Antarctica, the peninsula here, that's the area I visited, that is much newer. That's 700 million years old, relatively new in geological time. And there the mountains are very dramatic, very uh, shooting straight up out of the water and is incredibly beautiful with the glaciers calving right off. But on the point of the Piri Reese map, if you can see the blow up of what Antarctica looked like without the ice, uh, as well as along the Palmer Peninsula there, there are many islands. I visited about a dozen of them myself. Without the ice, you would have been able to see them uh, as was depicted on the Piri Reese map. And with global warming, they are still discovering new islands all the time. But the Piri Reese map existed after the fr freezing over, so the mystery is how did they able to detect the land when, when it was covered with ice? So, David, do you have anything to add to the whole uh, Antarctica discussion? Um, I do have something more on a personal note. Um, See, my surrogate mother was Viola Armstrong. She had a son named Neil. Oh, really? Back so I, I grew up in that world, and because of that, I got to know Buzz Aldrin really well. And I got to talk to Buzz about seven months ago. And um, he, as you know, the story goes, he went down to Antarctica, had a, a heart attack stroke combo, and came back. And, and then there was stuff on the Internet. <laughs> I had to look at Buzz and ask him, uh, Buzz, what happened down there, Bud? Um, he's looking at me, and, he, and I've known the man since 1970. And um, in all the years I've known him, 
Buzz is is a tough guy. You remember the circumstances? Uh, every, all these one percenters were going down there. It's like a new Disney World. Then Buzz has his um, health problem. Then it all just bang stopped, like he threw a switch. Never heard any more about it. Nobody went down there. Nobody's allowed to go down there. And at that time, at exactly that time, when John Kerry had gone there, Buzz Aldrin went in November or something, uh, the summer months, I heard from whistleblowers that one of the alien presences had returned or was returning or was coming back into Antarctica, and we had started clearing out forces. I would love to be able to present proof, but what if that is what happened? Well, Buzz did say one thing, and um, it just stuck in my head. It's the way he said it. He just said, um, we thought out things we shouldn't. And I went, what do you mean by that? Um, I was in uh, Antarctica for uh, two months, January and February. Coldest part of the time. I'm down there in 1973 for the United States Navy. Um, that's a great place to test probes that you're going to send to Mars. Or We tested Viking Lander down there because it's about 110 degrees below zero at the coldest. And um, if you think that's cold, Mars can be 250 below zero. So you put your machines out there and they run, and we'll see if they freeze up or lock up and got to fix things. And um, so it's a great place to test. That's why I was there. But I'm telling you, that's a hostile world, y'all. Um, I'm in a special suit. The, my master chief takes a can of water and throws it up in the air and it sounds like cellophane on a cigarette paper and it freezes solid and hits the ground. I go, God almighty. And he said, don't get out that suit. You'll live about two minutes. I don't plan on to. <laughs> so it, it's incredibly isolated. It's beautiful, but it's um, like Buzz once said on the moon, magnificent desolation. But let me... Let me ask something here, and y'all can help me out uh, if, if, I got, if I understand this right. Uh, the ice has started melting due to global warming for whatever reasons that is. And it finally melted down enough where the satellites passed over and you saw the pyramid, correct? Say that again? Not entirely, because one of the mysteries in Antarctica is that the East Antarctic area continues to build up ice, even if the West is melting. Yeah, it's true. Um, the Earth's name wasn't always Earth. It was called Snowball, if you look it up. And uh, we were covered in, in ice over the entire planet in the rotation of, the, of us going around the sun, the moon going around us, back and forth, back and forth. The friction finally thawed us out, and we got our world we know today. But at the poles, they're kind of not facing on the sides. They're facing up and down. So they're not going to be affected by the gravitational tides like that to enough where they're going to melt. But global warming entered the picture, and it thinned the ice down enough where you could see this image. And, and one way or another, they found this pyramid down there. And then I started me thinking, uh, it, I don't know if there's – I've never been down there, so I haven't seen any aliens or anything on board uh, in the pyramid, whatever. But think about this a minute. If all this happened and unfolded the way they did, um, then if Buzz saw something, and I don't know what it was, but it was, it was enough to give the man a heart attack. Um, so if there are beings down there, 
I would think these beings never planned on us. They've been there, you know, they came in millions of years ago. They've been under ice for millions of years. I don't think they were expecting us. It is that the whistleblowers themselves suggested this to me, not as fact, but as inside scuttlebutt speculation. That there literally have been discussions that Antarctica 34 to 33 million years ago began to be plunged under ice because an alien intelligence or intelligences knew how to do this in order to have a huge, massive part of the Earth that it, the alien presence, could put off limits to humans, essentially camouflaging and hiding themselves under thick ice deliberately because they can sustain with technology we don't understand 68 to 72 degrees Fahrenheit in these huge gigantic rooms with walls that glow, everything is self-activating software. And so it means in a strange way that aliens that may have been interacting going back to two million years ago in the genetic manipulation to create Homo erectus that they could have had a base, quote-unquote, right. at the South Pole to hide from their experiments. In 1945-1946, the summer, Emerald Bird went to Antarctica conducting uh, negotiations with the Antarctic Germans because they greatly respected uh, Emerald Bird because he was there to actually... He was the guest of honour for the launch of Captain Richter's expedition in 19, uh, 1937-38. If 34 million years ago is when an alien presence decided that they were going to build on the Antarctic continent and then cover it with ice, go to 2 million years, that would be 32 million years later, is the first time that Homo erectus stands up in Africa. So we are a crossfade with Neanderthalensis 45,000 years ago. So, you, so if you come up from us, that means that the non-humans were in... Antarctica 34 to 33 million years ago, they knew everything that was happening and they would likely be the genetic manipulators of the evolving primate. But let me ask Mike, what they, they, you said they actually weren't Nazis there or were they uh, a faction? Yeah, they, the were, they were German nationalists. So Hitler was not allowed into Antarctica. Hitler was given basically safe refuge in Argentina and Colombia. So they did allow Hitler to survive the war. This, this was part of the deal, that Hitler and a lot of other Nazis would be given safe passage to South America, and they would basically live the rest of their lives in kind of like e pleasant exile. But the German nationalists in uh, Antarctica continued to work to complete their space program, to complete the construction of these uh, spacecraft, these Vril craft, these Hannibal craft. There was the Hannibal series of craft that were built. And, and German Space Command was set up in Antarctica. There was a whistleblower, well, actually not a whistleblower, a researcher by the name of Vladimir Tuzinski. He worked with the Bulgarian Academy of Sciences. And he was the first to release a lot of documents showing what was actually happening in Antarctica with the, with the Germans. And uh, he showed pictures uh, which included German Space Command out of, out of Antarctica. And so they were launching 
craft to the moon to Mars, and uh, this was where people first began learning that the German program out of Antarctica had successfully placed people on the moon and and, in, and on Mars, and were continuing to basically explore the solar system. And all of that was conducted out of Antarctica. Wait, I don't understand. Were the Germans still there when Buzz Aldrin showed up? Well, the Germans have never left. Their bases are continuing operation to this day. Some are seasonal bases, some are permanent bases. But right now, there's only a thousand people on that entire continent, and they're just like the skeleton crew of the bases that stay year-round. This is the fifth largest continent of the world, and there's a thousand humans on it. So you can tell how uh, desolate it is. But the thing about Buzz Aldrin, that there was this very cryptic tweet that came out during his stay down there. He said, we have seen the faces of evil and we're all in danger. Right. And this is right before he had his heart attack. And I can tell you, logistically, to do a medical evacuation from the interior of Antarctica is very difficult yeah. and very expensive. Right. So something must have majorly gone wrong with Buzz. And in the work that I have done about the missing National Science Foundation scientists, and that goes to the work I've done with the naval flight engineer who was there in a C-130 crew that was assigned to take in 12 or 15 scientists with a whole C-130 full of gear. And they went to Marie Birdland, which on that map, if McMurdo is down here on the west side, uh, Marie Birdland is here. Wait, wait, you're saying on this map, where, where yeah. would it be? Here is where the missing, the missing National Science Foundation is right. If you guys can see here, and here's McMurdo, and we're talking about East Antarctica over here, but probably Beardmore Glacier, as being where some kind of an alien intelligence has had some kind of presence, structures, craft, everything for at least, let's say, 34 million years. Talk about the black sun and how that relates to what you, your whistleblowers discovered. And then we can get to the missing scientists, right? Well, it, it, to underscore the fact that when the C-130 crew had dropped them off, they disappeared. And then when they went to try to find them, there was nothing at the National Science Foundation camp at all. Nothing they were moving. gone, two, they a were dozen totally scientists. Gone. And when they did show up, they had been missing for a couple of weeks and uh, Brian S. and the C-130 flight crew were then sent back, and they were expecting that they would see this group of scientists out to meet their plane, doing this, yelling something. And he, he said they were lined up like birds on a wire. They were all kind of next to each other, and most of them had their heads down looking at their feet when the C-130 was pulling up and that somebody had to go from the flight crew over to the scientists and direct them to get onto the plane. And they talked about how not one single scientist said one word. Most of them walked with their looking down at the ground. Brian said when they got them loaded up, he said to his uh, flight chief, what in the world? Where have they been? And the flight chief said, I don't know. We can't get a word out of them. And during the flight, Brian went and sat down next to one of the scientists, and he said he leaned over and touched the scientist's knee. 
and the man never looked up and he said it was as if we were dealing with 12 or 15 people who had suffered post-traumatic shock syndrome that they were unnaturally frozen in their position and no speaking and that they all looked afraid and the question is if Buzz Aldrin had a heart attack that's a leap of speculation because of what he saw and was exposed to in one of these underground facilities that my whistleblower Spartan One has described then was that hole, the big hole in the ice near Pole, where those scientists went, and did they meet face-to-face -face with the non-humans that have been variously described as hairless humanoids to something so strange that one of the seals that I have talked to that is not in the video said that as they walked for a mile or two miles into these very strange created architectures. They reached a point where something started coming through the walls out into the air. At first it would go in and out of visibility and then they realized that their minds were being manipulated and then when they could see it clearly and it was coming in and out like a television signal in the air it appeared to be covered with uh, scales, uh, like an armadillo, the surface of an armadillo. And he said, when you are face-to-face -face with something like that and you are trained in military to kill, but you're dealing with something you've never seen and it can go in and out of visibility, and you know that your mind is being taken over by something that you are fighting. He said that happened in one of those corridors, and that was 2012. So those scientists were severely traumatized, and yes. they never come forward as a whistleblower, none of them. Well, one of the things that I think uh, is important to emphasize is that uh, NASA was set up under German control, that uh, in the 1950s deals were made with the Germans in Antarctica where there would be technology sharing and the Germans in Antarctica would give the US administration, uh, the Eisenhower administration, technical and scientific assistance in reverse engineering some of the extraterrestrial craft. And in return, uh, the Eisenhower administration would funnel a lot of resources, a lot of manpower and funding to the German space program in Antarctica. And, and the cover for all of this was the Apollo program. And the way they did it was they set Germans up who had been brought over under Operation Paperclip to run the Marshall Space Flight Center, which was actually in charge of the Apollo program. And the Marshall Space Flight Center was, uh, was run by Germans who were former Nazi uh, officers, uh, Werner von Braun and his deputy, and the whole team of German paperclip scientists were put down there at the Marshall Flight Center to run the Apollo program. And also, you actually had at the Kennedy Space Center, you had Kurt Debus, who was another Nazi official, 
who was put in charge of the launching facility for the Apollo program right throughout the 1960s and 70s. And all of the funding for the Apollo program, $22 billion a year, was actually a smokescreen for putting man on the moon. Because what was really happening was that they were funneling a lot of money that the CIA had, had getting through all their illicit processes uh, through NASA down to the German program in Antarctica to help the Germans to get not to the moon, well, they got there, but also to Mars and beyond. So in my book, uh, the, the, that's uh, the latest book that's out there, the US Air Force Secret Space Program and, and uh, Space Force, it basically says, my argument is that while the Apollo program got Germans, sorry, while, while the Apollo program got Americans to the moon, it got the Germans to Mars and Alpha Centauri. Brad, yeah. And, Thank and you. just to follow up with what Michael s said, the, the, the Apollo program was just a cover for the real technology that was in the secret space program. Much of that funneled out of Germany just before the war to these bases, uh, Point 11, New Berlin base, which Admiral Dolent said, we have created an impregnable fortress for the Fuhrer in 1943. And that is presumed to be this new Berlin base in New Schwabenland. Also, when I was in South America, I was discovering that there are still these massive tracts of land in Chile and Argentina where also some of these scientists and laboratories could have gone. Mm. And what's so interesting in all this and what also uh, Spartan One has talked about, that in this big craft, is the black sun. Right. Talk about is, that, Linda, because it gets even weirder, right? Yeah, it's I mean, a lot weirder. Yeah. And one of the most fascinating things in doing research into the history of the black sun, you can get it back into Mesopotamia. It is associated in Sanskrit with something that would sound like they are describing the soul, the animus of the body container. Can you describe but, what it looks like? Yeah. Uh, ring, 12 arms coming out at the end of each 12, two 90-degree angles. There's the first one. There's the second one. And each of the 12 arms has the two 90-degree angles. And so you have this image like that. And they found this in these underground and structures. The, and these... Uh, were carved by uh, Spartan One's testimony. They were carved on the inside of the installation, and he had to, he had, he had been briefed that what he would be encountering were 23 foot high doors, 18 feet thick. All he had to do was put his index finger on the outside and touch and the entire 18 by 23 massive basalt would move. He would go through. It would close. He would turn around, and there would be the 23 foot by, I think it was 17 feet wide, black basalt with, up here was the black sun, and down here was a star map. And the star map was being studied by an astronomer that was also, they had scientists there in addition to the language people. 
and the astronomer told Spartan One that one of the doors they had be, had put, taken the pattern, put it into a computer program for analysis, and it had produced information that there were three focal points in this one particular star map below a black sun, and that the three focal points, when they went to Hubble, they, it became a Hubble project to do a reality check on this. And Hubble, when, when they took the photographs of Hubble and they did the overlays and all of these things and found these three focal points, they concluded one was at the center of the Milky Way galaxy and the other two were in a geometric relationship to what they said were two universes outside of this universe. This is very hard to wrap our heads around, but just hang in there for a second, because as I continue to investigate the histories of the black sun and all of the related subjects to it, a man who is a physicist in England sent me an email with an attachment that looked like the black sun. Not 12 arms, there were 18, but it was the same two 90-degree angles at the end. And he said, consider the possibility that this new physics symbol, arms with two 90-degree angles, and here is what it stands for in modern 2019 physics. If you accelerate an electric charge to the speed of light, it instantaneously turns into a sphere. And that pattern represents that in physics today. What if the black sun has always been an alien intelligence's representation of the network of portals throughout the Milky Way galaxy and beyond, and that this is how they move through the cosmos. Wow. Uh, David, does that make sense to you? On a fundamental particle level, yes. Um, Lots of times, especially when I have built... God, I can't even count them all. Vacuum chambers. I had a vacuum chamber one time to size this entire room. And I am firing uh, particles in there, and I'm charging them to the speed of light, and they crash. And what's interesting, always when they break, they always break at 90 degrees. Did you know that? No. They always break. And you was going, I was sitting up here doing this while you were talking, and I'm going, I've seen that before in the vacuum chambers. Um and never really understood why. We, we just take it as a, a phenomenon. We, we, in science, if we don't know something, it's a phenomenon. And uh, so, but... You could see the black that's sun. That's the first time I ever thought, my yeah. God, maybe there's a black sun at work in there. Um, yeah. And in my vacuum chamber, I can represent different time periods of the planet at will. And um, no matter what time period I'm in, they always break 90 degrees. Mm. Um, if you could see the black sun, would you make more sense of that based on that physics? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that would be like, um, see, I always complain, I get an argument with colleagues that they tell me, here's the periodic table. That's it. End all of everything. There's nothing else in the universe. 
And I'm, go- <laughs> I'm going, could it be we have half a volume and the encyclopedia set runs off the end of the table? Right. You know, and we're, how arrogant, tell me something like that. You know, there are things out there. There's probably a dilithium crystal out there. Some of the guys run around powering his craft with it. Um, we don't know yet, but for just to shut down and say that's the end all of everything. The black sun may be real. Um, next time, I've got it. When I go to the Middle East, I'll be building another vacuum chamber. I will run a, a test, see if I can find a black sun. Good. Wow. So, wh- what did you find, Brad? Well, and with the 90 degree angle, that makes perfect sense, and that it can be replicated in a laboratory. But it's the occult symbolism of the black sun being replicated in this age old ship. Now, here is a classic example of something that had a history that went back to Mesopotamia, and it was not associated with brutal security forces in Mesopotamia, but they reached back from Germany to get that for some reason that I personally, this is just a personal opinion from all of the material I have been uh, swamped in for the last several months. I think they were dealing with full-blood ETs. I'm just going to say, I think that Maria Orsic and those blondes were associated with an extraterrestrial presence that was interfacing directly with some of the German power structure, and that I think they had portal abilities to go back and forth to different places, and that when Maria Orsic, who was head of the Vril Society, disappeared during the war, I bet she ended up back on a planet in Aldebaran. I can't prove any of this. But... What I think and speculate is that the black sun in Mesopotamia was there because extraterrestrials, full-blood extraterrestrials, were the Anunnaki and the Sumerians. And that means that in the 20th century, at the time, as a DIA guy told me, quote-unquote, World War II was an extraterrestrial war between competing, fighting extraterrestrial civilizations fought through human bodies, close quote. And if that's true, and if a lot of the wars going back through to Samaria, and I think Anunnaki was real, I do not think it's mythological, that there have been warring extraterrestrials throughout this solar system, and that the black sun was probably a technology representation that was used by one or more. It was there, the current ETs interfacing with Hitler during World War II knew all about that. They were influencing the development of the Vril, and they had some relationship to the Black Sun, and they inspired or told Himmler to use it. And that is how all of that came about, allegedly in human terms in World War II. I think the biggest influencers were alien intelligences. Well, go ahead. Yeah, Um, thank you. Man, I'm glad you're sitting down. Wait till you hear this. (laughs) Um, You know, I have this crazy memory. It's eidetic, and I remember things. And... When you're coming out of a heart condition, you ramble, you got medications, and they're messing you up. 
But Buzz said something, it was a phrase, and he was just staring out the window when he said it, and I, I remembered it, but it didn't make any sense. Until you just said all this, and I went, holy smoke. You know Buzz fought in World War II, right? You know, he was, he was in the conflict. And it, this may not mean anything at all, or it might really be significant, but he said, um, they're back and we're going to do it all over again. They're back, and they're, back, they're, and they're, back going and they're going to do it all over again. And it's the way he said it. It's just like, it's how he said it. It's just like somebody's been beat to death, you know, and can you, can you believe it? We're going to do it all over again. And that relates to what I was saying, that one of the possibilities the whistleblowers raised is that one of the alien intelligences that may not be very nice returned in 2017 and that when Buzz Aldrin went there, this is what they were worried about is that something had come back and it was dangerous and they had uh, Carrie and Aldrin and the Greek guy there for reasons that are not clear, but the whistleblower says that is exactly the time that the unmentionable returned. Uh, I just yeah. wanted to bring, bring us back to this idea that uh, the U.S. Navy knew all along that the Germans were working with this reptilian extraterrestrial group called the Draconians and that uh, Bill Tompkins said that these Navy spies would come into the briefing room at Naval Air Station San Diego and would be embarrassed to be saying that, well, you know, we saw these beings, these reptilian consultants giving all of this information to the Germans or to the Nazi SS in terms of how to build these craft, giving them instructions to go to Antarctica. And, and that's what happened. And the Navy knew about this all the time. And so that kind of gives us a, a framework for understanding what happened in the 1950s when agreements were made with the Germans because uh, the Navy was aware of this. And, then, and the, a decision was made that the Navy would continue to work with the human-looking extraterrestrials that, have, that helped the Allied powers win the Second World War and that the Air Force would work with the Germans and the, their reptilian partners in Antarctica to try and get as much information as possible to build out their space program because I think uh, the Navy and the, Navy's all, the U.S. Navy has always been the custodian of the American Republic. They've been the ones that, that are the, the protectors. And they were the ones that made the decisions at the very beginning. Um, Michael, Forrester, just for a second, do you mean that you're, from your point of view, that the United States made a kind of schizophrenic bargain? That they would have, mm -hmm. the Air Force would be collaborating with the reptilians for technology gain, mm -hmm. and the Navy would be collaborating with exactly. the humanoids and the hairless ones for allyship. Exactly, yes. That, that was a strategic choice and it was actually makes sense. You, tr you see there are both two different factions of extraterrestrials that have been fighting each other for who knows how long and so you basically set up uh, an alliance system where you can learn and get as much as you could from each, each of those 
extraterrestrial entities and, and try and build up your own space program so that you could one day maybe match them. And so the Navy went down one track, and this is what William Tompkins describes, that the, that the Navy was actually working with uh, these human-looking extraterrestrials that were planted into the Douglas Aircraft Company in the 1950s and planted into other aerospace companies in the 60s that Tompkins says that basically were helping the Navy designed these space battle groups for the future. All blonde and blue-eyed, too. That's right, yeah. Exactly and then the on the other side was... The Air Force was working with the Draconians and, and, their, and their Fourth Reich allies out of Antarctica trying to get as much information as possible. So this is, this is where you get the kind of German influence uh, over the Air Force uh, where they were really helping the Air Force get as much of this technology as possible. So I think this is what we've had, is almost like a schizophrenic relationship. Um, and, and the U.S. is unique because it is the only country in the world that I know of that has these different military services which are virtually autonomous. Could There's I? no other country in the world that, that has military services that are that separate and independent from one another. Every other country, you have one centralized... Uh, defense structure because that's how you maintain uh, loyalty. In the United States, and this was something that was the genius of the uh, founding fathers, I guess, that set up the, this kind of system where you have the army and the navy and the marines and the air force was a much later creation. But the, each one was distinct and separate to each other and had a certain degree of autonomy. And then in 1947, with the creation of uh, the, the Department of Defense, you, you had it enshrined in legislation where these different military branches would be independent of one another, except for the Marines and the Navy. They would be both under one department, the Department of the Navy. But the Army and the Air Force and the Department of the Navy are basically independent of one another. And, Michael, you may be describing why there is now an obsession about getting a space force for the United States to combine, yeah, to combine everything Space into command. an inertia because something may not be friendly that we're going to have to face soon publicly, and that may be what forces that headline out. We are not alone in this universe. Well, the we, Space Force. <laughs> and explains why they want a Space Command. Yeah. You know, yeah. you combine the forces and um, yeah. there's... Um, Man, it's lock and load time. Um, <laughs> there's one thing I want to go back in our talks uh, on Von Braun. Um, you can imagine with my life, everything. I knew Von Braun personally, yeah, for years and years. I met him when I was 15. And uh, I had won so many awards, it's a long story, but that's why. After about the 10th medal, he hung around my neck. He said, what are you doing, child? And I went... I guess I'm a little busy. So we became friends, and um, he tested me one time. And I, th I think y'all should hear this test. Uh, we just met the first day, and he's looking at me, and he says, um, he asked me, he said, how tall are the doors on the VAB, the Vehicle Assembly Building, where you assemble rockets? And I went, 475 feet. How tall is the Saturn V fully stacked? 367 feet. Why is it's so much taller then because you were getting ready, Dr. Von Braun, build a fourth stage Saturn to go to Mars. 
And that's why they were built that way. And a lot of people don't know that. I have the blueprints of the four-stage Saturn at home. And it's, um, he was wanting to go to Mars. That, that's all he wanted to do. He wanted to go to the moon. He wanted to go to Mars. He didn't want to rain rockets down on people in England. But when they took him and the 125 scientists on his side, and then the other 135, and they had like 255 scientists, they brought all their families in. And they just gave them a simple choice at Pina Monday where they built the V-2 rockets. Uh, you work and build our rockets, or we shoot a member of your family every day until you start working. What are you going to do? You're going to work. Uh, when Von Braun came into the uh, United States, he was sitting in the hallway of the West Wing, and um, him and Obart and several of the others that was with the group, they were crying because they think that, yeah, they were crying because they believe they're going to be murdered. You know, they were captured by us. We brought them over. And the secretary, you know, uh, letter-typing secretary, went by and saw the men weeping. She went into Eisenhower's office. It was his secretary. She chewed him out. Go out there and do something about that. You know, we're not like that. And so they went out there and calmed them down and everything. And they sent them to White Sands, New Mexico. And um, we sent the captured V-2 rockets there, and we named them Bumpers. And they started work out there, and that's how we ended up out in White Sands, New Mexico, with our rocket scientists. Because how are you going to tell a war-weary nation that you just brought in 125 scientists that built weapons that killed over 200 million people worldwide? You're not going to tell them. So that's how that whole thing started. Um, but Von Braun was the nicest guy I ever knew. Uh, and when he left the space program and he died a few years after, I guarantee you, he had a he had bad stomach and ulcers. But they, that he died of a broken heart because wow. he was so heartbroken through the whole thing. He just didn't want to live anymore. And I really was. What, what broke his heart specifically? Pardon? What broke his heart specifically? Um, not getting to go to the moon and and going on to Mars. They shut down the space program basically. You know, that was the first shutdown, 1970. Well, in 71, by 71, we were closing down. 75, we had Skylab. And then we shut down for a period of about six, seven years before we started back up with the space shuttles. And now you have shut down again. And this time it's permanent. You know your manned space program is gone, right? U.S., you don't have one. You know the pads, 37A and B, that you launched the shuttles from? Look at them on Google. They're big slabs of concrete. They cut all the towers down and sold it for scrap iron. Well, let's, Everything's let's get, gone. Well, Dan, did Werner von Braun ever say to you that he knew that there was ancient archaeology on Mars that matched the archaeology inside the moon that matched the archaeology in Antarctica? Not with Antarctica, but he referred to uh, the ancients of this planet, um, there's relics that he believed that were here and that we'd find their matches on Mars. And that's why he wanted to go so bad. Um, well, the, the whistleblowers say that they have seen the photographic match that from photos that we have taken, apparently, I assume, Sidonia, but I'm not sure. Right. That the archaeology, the symbols, the hieroglyphs on Mars match 
hieroglyphs that we have accessed in some way from inside the moon and in a site on the backside of the moon and that it matches the hieroglyphs and symbols under deep under the ice in Antarctica. Um, unfortunately, Von Braun passed away before all that came out. Uh, I would like for him to live long enough to see it. But uh, as far as the backside of the moon, uh, I've got an answer for that. Uh, when I get to the Middle East and we start up, um, I have a series of probes, and we're all landing on the backside. Let's get back to that Space Force discussion, because I want to understand if, the, if you said, Linda, that the Navy and the Air Force are now sort of joining forces because there's something, this is your hypothesis, something that we haven't expected is showing up now. What do you think that could be? I'm going to keep it in politically acceptable boxes. Let your mind roam back uh, five or 6,000 years and think of the old ancient texts uh, about gods that may never have been gods. They may have been the full-blood ETs that made Antarctica and that there was conflict then as there is now, and the issue is which of those gods representing which ET civilization came back in 2017 or some semblance of it, and why? And what allies? Now, the, the whistleblowers, so you do, do not feel panic, you do not feel fear about this. It's my understanding that our allies are, that are not human are really helping us right now. And the, but we all need to be able to stand up and face the facts that some things out there in the cosmos don't like all life in the universe and our particular Earth probably because of competing civilizations at the time of the Anunnaki and way before, going back at least 270 million years and probably half a billion, that there have been these waves and waves and waves of extraterrestrial civilizations on this planet. Someday we will know this. So that whatever the ancient conflicts have been and the residues are now, Whatever could come back, we have strong allies. So this means if we could be told all the truth, we probably would have to redesign and look at all of our ancient history and religions through completely different lenses. But it never means that there is not a divine field and that there are alien intelligences who respect that as much as we do, and they are trying to help us. And that is the ground I'm standing on in the work that I do, and I hope you will too. On July 23rd, 2012, and by the way, this story was not released until two years later. But I knew about it because I'm the national spokesperson for the SHIELD Act. So, you know what happened July 23rd, 2012? We all should have died. Not one, not two, but three CMEs, big, each of them bigger than the Carrington event of 1869, were traveling in a row. These globs of plasma were bigger in size and weight and depth 
um, in density than Mount Everest. There's three of them. We've never seen three in a row before. It's a perfect storm. And it covers 93 million miles in 14 hours. That's fast, y'all. That, that's quicker than a Volkswagen. So anyway, they came here from 93 million miles away. They passed Earth so close, they passed between us and the moon. This is fact. 110,000 miles away, they passed right by. They were heading dead center. If they had hit, game over. We all died. The first one would have stripped Van Allen radiation belts. Two and three would have had clear shots into the atmosphere. They've cascaded over the planet. And everything you ever heard about um, the event of, of a corona mass ejection would have happened. The entire planet would have incinerated from our electronics. Where is your power grid? 40 feet in the air. Every transformer would have detonated. They're full of oil. That's how they handle the heat. They become napalm everywhere. People on fire run down sidewalks, baby strollers on fire, just as bad as you could think. And then all the aircraft in the sky, over half a million people at any one time, they all come down. You can't restart the engines. They crash in the hospitals, schools, churches, you know, this building. It had been just unbelievably bad. I can't make it so bad for you. So what happened? Well, here's what happens. Right, right before it hit us, and it's a phenomenon, <laughs> something, and I, never, I can't ever get a definition for something, bumped these things, and they just veered off and just glazed by us. Now, that started me thinking. People like you make me think all the time now. So I said, hey, if they had hit us on July 23rd, and you go six months ahead, all vegetation life is gone. All the last human being or last animal would have died. And that date would have rolled up to be December 22nd, 2012. They were right. Not bad for a group of people who don't even have a computer. And Dan Adair, that is one of the big secrets that I have been told to keep secret that <laughs> but you just outlined something that was described to me five years ago by a physicist who was involved in exactly the that there was going to be this kind of ejection from the sun and the same thing happened in, and it's in my uh, Spartan one and two the part three where they knew, because they are inside of the military that has that are in interstellar trade routes and know all about ETs and all of that, they had firsthand information that it was just two years ago, something very similar to what you just said, that there was going to be another huge solar prominence that was going to interact with our planet and this was also in the winter. I'm trying to remember uh, the headlines, I think, were in that November, December period of 2017. And they said that they know that this was uh, shown in photographs that 
one of our allies came into the solar system that is collaborating with us in interstellar trade, parked itself out at Saturn. This, I don't understand the physics, and you could explain it. Yeah. But they parked themselves out at Saturn. Maybe they sent ships to the sun. Probably, I have no idea. But that they stopped a prominence that was going to do what you just described, because the physicist said, leading up, if that, back in 2012, if that had not been blocked, then that whole idea of the Mayan calendar coming to the end yeah. and an apocalypse. Well, they hit it on the head. And um, This is the first time I've ever said this. Well, I just oh, run around with this oh. stuff, but it, <laughs> it's... Wait, one more thing about, and I want to get Brad and Michael in here, but the 2017 date when something shows up, could that be why the New York Times released that article about the Nibbets and all of this coming public as a kind of movement towards disclosure because something has shown up in our reality that has made a presence? Alan, that may be a two plus two equals four that none of us have really thought about until this moment because these are pieces that are coming together that we all should see in a big pattern, and I wouldn't be surprised if that isn't the case. And there's the reason why it was Jupiter. Jupiter is a Jovian giant. No, Saturn. Oh, Saturn's ring. It's also the second largest one, but between Jupiter and Saturn. Do you remember when Jupiter got hit by Shoemaker-Levy yeah. 9? Yeah. yeah. If it wasn't for Jupiter, we'd been toast long ago. <laughs> The Saturn and Jupiter both pulls in things in our solar system, pulls them and crash them into us. Shoemaker-Levy 9 was heading straight for Earth, and the gravity field of Jupiter pulled it in. Now, if you're going to make orbital changes as trajectories at Earth, I would do it somewhere between Jupiter and Saturn. And that's because there's a longitudinal, it's an angularization problem mathematically. It's the best place to do it using the least amount of energy. And um, so that's and that's where these things got bumped. These three CMEs was out there, and so maybe one of your friends is out there in a big ship, and that'd be a good place to park it. Um, and one other footnote: look it up. Where was the United States government on July twenty third, twenty twelve? No, it was a little like a. The federal government has an open house picnic at Mount Weatherby for Congress and its families. Those <laughs> bastards were out there sitting in Mount Weatherby getting ready to close the doors and they're going to let us burn. Wow. Underground, huge facility yeah. there for the government people. Wow. So your suspicions Thanks. about the government? <laughs> yeah, they're right and a whole lot worse. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Brad, and yeah. why don't you jump in with this that? This is great. <laughs> uh, yeah, please talk about that. Well, just just back to Antarctica. I think the discussion also back has to, to Antarctica with, yeah. with with Germany <laughs> and their interaction with New Schwabenland. Uh, Michael and I have slides of some of the maps of New Schwabenland, including the access points under the ice. So any discussion of Germany and Antarctica has to include the U-boats. And we know that the Germans had very advanced U-boats. What, quite what possibly. is a U-boat? Well, it's an uh, underwater boat. Oh. It's, it's submarine in, in German terms. And Das Boat, the movie, was about U-boat pilots. Uh, and what was the reason for that? 
Well, that is how they were getting the equipment and the personnel down there. And this is very important because when all of the craft came out of Puente Munde and the Skoda Works, there was nothing there when the Allies and the Soviets rolled into Germany. They had done one of the biggest evacuations of some of the top personnel and all this equipment to this area of Germany, as well as South America bases, uh, uh, these large land holdings that are still private property and off-limits. Brad, do you think that all of those extraordinary constructions of the submarine bases two miles down, that the Navy SEAL that has been there says that they look like one big, huge Lego, no cracks, no seams, no anything, could the Germans have, with the uh, Aldebaran help, mm. been told to take submarines to what was already built, and that's why you would have a confluence of the Nazis using submarines to go into something that was already there by extraterrestrials? That's exactly where I was going with this. Because if you, if you look at the map, the under ice map, there are massive channels and they all interconnect the 91 active volcanoes in Antarctica, which would create these massive domes under the ice and geothermal features like the Schumacher ponds where they, they set up uh, point 0.211, the New Berlin base. So to find your way through these ice fields and get under there and they could have had help they could have been directed to get down there because it was must have been very treacherous very dangerous and very dark but if you know the way and you can get in there you are talking about an impregnable fortress especially what linda's whistleblowers are saying so michael what do you say about the whole structure of the land and what as a base well we actually may know a, a tremendous amount of, of what's underneath Atlantis. Uh, there's a book that was written by Rand Flem Ath and his wife Rose called Atlantis Under the Ice. And they make a really compelling case that Antarctica, what we know as uh, West Antarctica, for a lot of its history was actually outside of the Antarctic Circle because of the crustal displacements that have occurred over the, over the last 100,000 years. So when Plato talked about the last days of Atlantis, he was talking about this period just before the last crustal displacement or pole shift that occurred um, 9400 BC and that uh, Atlantis, which was this flourishing civilization that Plato described in great detail in his dialogues, Timaeus and Critias, and the tremendous um, uh, kind of geography and architectural designs that were used to build the, the Atlantean capital, all of that was basically moved through a pole shift that placed Ant- Antarctica down by the South Pole and led to the enormous uh, ice sheet over North America. North Amer- the I- the uh, North Pole was actually located in Hudson Bay. And North America, um, Nebraska, all of that was north of that, was just one massive ice sheet. And this is something that uh, Graham Hancock described in great de- detail, how the massive North American ice sheet uh, basically dissolved around 9400 uh, BC, uh, which coincided with the end of the Younger Dryas period. Mm. So the Earth's 
oceans rose about 400 feet. So what Plato described was basically two things that happened. Well, there was a crustal displacement that moved Antarctica, the, the western Antarctica, close to the South Pole, because East Antarctica was always in, close to the, to the, much closer to the South Pole, so that remained frozen, and could have been frozen as much as 34 million years, as, as Linda is saying. But West Antarctica has been, for major periods of its history, ice-free, and so this, through the crustal displacement, was moved back down towards the South Pole, and it froze over. So Atlantis was flash-frozen, and the ice, uh, the oceans rose 400 feet. So all of a sudden, Atlantis, going from a temperate climate with this super-civilization, was now under 400 feet of ice that, that was uh, quickly uh, flash-frozen over it. And over the succeeding um, 13,000, sorry, uh, what is it, 11,600 years, you've had ice accumulate over West Antarctica, making it uh, close to two miles thick. And we know from ice core samples that West Antarctica, the ice core samples are much younger than East Antarctica. In East Antarctica, uh, the ice core samples date, date back millions of years. But West Antarctica, they're less than a few thousand years old. So the ice sheet in West Antarctica is relatively new, but East Antarctica, it's ancient. And that could have caused the flood, but also 33 million years ago it was tropical and it could have been at the equator when something could have hit the earth and it spun to the you, South Pole. You, Pangea has been worked out and it's animation showing how it happened per 5 million years. And where Antarctica, the, la the roundish land, is coming off of what we would call South Africa... It is bound up to other land as it's coming down. It takes 100 million years to get to the South Pole. Other land masses moved off that formed South America and others, but this was a, a track all the way down. And, Michael, technically, in terms of pole shifts, the physics today says the last pole shift was 807, I think it's 876,000 years ago. There have been periodic small magnetic anomalies in that 876,000 years. Not pole shifts, but there have been temporary large changes like once or twice. I do not know if any like that happened 12,000 years ago. There was no pole shift 12,000 years ago. So whatever is that landscape of magnetic field anomalies, Wilkes Land on the east side of Antarctica is the largest, look this up, you guys. It's fascinating to read. The largest magnetic anomaly on Earth is in Wilkes Land, Antarctica. The largest. It is so significant. Where is that exactly? What now, I'm going to go ahead and say this. I don't like to say things that I don't have some actual proof, but I think that the whistleblowers need to be heard. And, and, and this... Just right offshore is the magnetic South Pole, and it is also moving off the continent now, too. 
it's in Commonwealth Bay, and just like the North Magnetic Pole is racing across the Arctic Ocean towards Siberia, that may have something to do with the magnetic anomaly. And I'm going to throw this back to you just with this. I read a tremendous amount of literature written by geophysicists just in the last 10 years, all with huge mysteries, question marks about what is the Wilkes land magnetic anomaly, and they're concluding that it must be an asteroid with a lot of iron and heaven knows what other kinds of metals, and that it penetrated deep into that land that is East Antarctica. It's not very far from the sea. So if you think on that map where you've seen McMurdo and then you go, you can't really say north, south, east, west in Antarctica. You have to look at maps and say, go to the right and find this latitude, longitude. But the whistleblower, Navy SEAL, said he was told specifically, no ifs, ands, or buts, that the Wilkes Land magnetic anomaly is actually a craft, a machinery, a technology, and it is really deep, and they don't know if it is deliberately functional exactly where it is for reasons related to all of the area near Beardmore that is ancient archaeology, and the implication also is that if they've got six 62-acre sites where Spartan 1 walked, and that is in the Beardmore Glacier area, and Brad can tell you about what has been found there in terms of fossils, what would be between Beardmore Glacier and the Wilkes Land magnetic anomaly that we would only know by deep ice-penetrating radar, no other way, and we may have answers, but nobody's talking. Well, I want to respond to, to what you said, Linda, because I think it's important that people appreciate that when we try to understand you know, what is the history of Antarctica, there are three theories in terms of the positioning of Antarctica. Um, one is the continental drift theory that uh, Linda just explained, that Antarctica broke off from Pangaea millions of years ago and that it's in its present location and it's been there for, for millions of years and hasn't moved. Um, the other is the Earth Crustal Displacement Theory that Charles Hapgood proposed back in the 1950s, and it's important to emphasize that Albert Einstein thought that Hapgood's theory was very sound, and he supported it and wrote the foreword to the book and explained the mechanism by which uh, the South Pole and the North Pole, uh, geographically south of the North Pole, actually moved through the Crustal Displacement Theory. But scientists today don't accept it. Can I finish, please? Uh, so they drift approximately 40 degrees um, each, for each pole shift. And the third theory, and we need to really consider this and not dismiss it, is the uh, Earth expansion hypothesis that there was never a supercontinent Pangaea. That's nonsense. That's just mainstream geology trying to uh, kind of pull the wool over our eyes. That, that the Earth itself was only approximately 60% of the size it once was. Expanding uh, of, Earth. So it was 60% of the size of, it, of, the, of what it is presently. And over the succeeding millennia, or millions of years, it, the Earth has expanded slowly. And as it expands, and you can see it in terms of the, the, the mid-Atlantic uh, um, um, ridge, 
and the Pacific Ridge, how the Earth has expanded. And mainstream geologists say, well, there's this subduction process where, yes, the Pacific Ridge expands, but it all kind of moves under, under the, um, the, the plate uh, over, Western, over uh, California. But in fact, this Earth expansion hypothesis is supported by some pretty uh, competent geologists who say that this is actually a more accurate description of our history. So if the Earth expansion hypothesis actually is true, then we can appreciate that a place like Atlantis does move that parts of it can be, for a period of time, near the South Pole, and other parts can move away. Well, that makes over sense period. to me because it looks like those continents are being ripped and stretched apart. But you guys, that reinforces Pangaea. That does not contradict. Pangaea, by definition, is where the land masses were together. Whether the Earth expanded or it was just volcanic crap, it doesn't matter. Pangaea is. They've even matched. They have matched layers in Africa to layers on the eastern side of South America. They were once upon a time joined exactly like a puzzle. That is Pangaea. The land was together. Whether it is drift or whether it would be crustal expansion by what you just said, Pangaea is where the land began expanding. Well, it Actually, it's, it's saying the same thing. What you call Pangaea was Earth millions of years ago when it was only 60% of its present size. So you know, whether you call that, that arrangement Pangaea or kind of like Earth... You mean like before the six, oceans in a way? The th that's right, before the... No, then no, the Earth no, the water was there. To, the, was the, the water was always around Pangaea. Well, thank you.